Welcome to Kevin Connors podcast. This series of messages on the book of Ezekiel were recorded in Malaysia in August 2010. Be sure to get a copy of Kevin's newly released commentary on the book of Ezekiel, available in paperback and ebook formats from Amazon.com and as an immediate PDF download from kevinconnor.org forward slash shop. Okay, we come to the final session and I said hallelujah. The motto here is, here's a preacher, let's kill him. <laughs> okay, for our final session, I want you to go to page uh, 30 and 31 and uh, see what we can do here. Uh, why don't we just have a brief word of prayer, ask the Lord to help us in our final session. Father, we just uh, do thank you from the bottom of our heart once again for your precious word. Uh, you've exalted your word even above all your name. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. And Lord, we just thank you for your inexhaustible word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we just pray, Lord, as we uh, move now into our final session, that the Holy Spirit will quicken us again, quicken us spiritually, mentally, and physically, just our whole being, uh, so that we can receive what we share in this uh, session. We commend our time to you in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. All right, now what I'd like to do, so page, uh, page, uh, what are we, 30, 31, um, I want to uh, just give you a couple of high spots, what I think, on the four views of Ezekiel's temple, but I'd like us just to uh, try, I'll try and do this on the whiteboard, I'm not very good on any of this, but we'll try. So I'd like you to uh, take down sort of this type of diagram, and uh, what we've done in previous sessions just divide the book into three basic parts. So uh, chapters 1 through to 11, so Ezekiel chapters 1 through to 11, basically deals with the old temple, the material temple, and as we saw the other night uh, when my voice was troubling a little bit, the glory of God departing. So the glory departs. So basically the first cha 11 chapters uh, deal with the old temple, the material temple, uh, and remember that uh, Jeremiah is up in Jerusalem ministering at the temple and Ezekiel is down in Babylon and he's having visions of the temple. So uh, Ezekiel's book is basically a visionary book. So chapters 1 to 11 of Ezekiel is the old material temple and the glory departing. And then when we come to the section we're looking at now, chapters 40 through to 48 is the new temple. And that's what we've got to consider, the new temple and uh, the glory returning. So the book opens and closes with a temple vision. So this is visionary and uh, this is visionary again. So the glory returns here in the new temple. So uh, these are the chapters that we want to look at together. So chapters 40 through to 48. Now, in between time, chapters uh, uh, 12 through to 39 are uh, chapters that we've looked at. Uh, chapters can, uh, these are all uh, basically pro prophecies. So that sort of uh, uh, gives you an overview of the book. So chapters 12 through to 29, first few chapters dealing with the judgment on Israel 
because judgment must begin at the house of God. And then we saw the chapters where it deals with Gentile nations, the Ammonites, Moabites, the Edomites, and the different uh, surrounding nations of Israel that were always against the people of God. Uh, and so forth, and I believe because of the promises given to the nation and the birthright that was given to them, and then chapters 38 and 39, we dealt with Gog and Magog. So uh, we've covered a tremendous lot of the book, believe it or not, in our nine sessions. So that just gives you the overall picture. The old temple and the glory departing and the temple being destroyed, chapters 1 to 11. Chapters 12 through to 39, the prophecies over uh, Judah, and uh, the Gentile nations, and then ending with Gog and Magog, and then the book closes with uh, chapters of the new temple, chapters 43 to 48, and the glory returning. Okay, so this is the controversial part that uh, we want to look at together. All right, so let's go to uh, the page here, page 30. And uh, I'm, I don't, you know, I, I try not to sell a book, but I'm, uh, I've already done some of this in a book, a couple of books that I need to refer you to. In fact, there's only one left on the table there, so have to rush afterwards and buy it. <laughs> uh, do you think I'd make a salesman at all? Okay. All right, now, this is very controversial, and uh, uh, if you disagree with me, disagree agreeably. It's not my fault if I'm right, okay? <laughs> And, uh, and uh, history always proves prophecy, see? So some people get upset with me and say, well, look, uh, in, in, regardless of what Kevin Connor believes or Hong Sing or Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck, it doesn't make any difference. God's got it all planned out and it will wor all work out in spite of us. Okay, this is how I understand it. And I've had to change my view, as I said the other night. I've had a lot to uh, uh, learn and unlearn and relearn and, uh, you know, the more I know after all these years, I've got 60 years behind me, the more I know, the less I know. Because uh, you'll never exhaust the book. I remember one minister in New Zealand said he'd exhausted the Bible. I thought, uh-uh, you got it round the wrong way. The Bible's exhausted you. Because <laughs> if you could exhaust the Bible, you'd exhaust the author. And God's the author, so you'll never exhaust what's in this book. As I said, the more I know, the le uh, less I know. All right, now... Okay, just briefly here, there's two major things I'm going to be dealing with. I'll tell you when I get to it. So, first of all, we have four uh, major views of Ezekiel's temple. Then we have uh, number one, which is the literal prophetic view. And if you want full details of that, uh, it's in ISBE, which is International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, and they deal with the literal view that Ezekiel's temple is going to be a literal temple, and uh, uh, I'll come back to the, about the time element. So the literal view, and then there's the dispensational view, which is very similar to the literal view. So a literal, actual, rebuilt temple. And then uh, we have the, uh, what's called, number three, the messianic apocalyptic view. And that this is when Christ comes, he'll probably build a temple and everything like that and rearrange the furniture on earth, everything like that. Number four is the view that I hold and uh, my school, so I'm not, uh, I'm not the only one in the world that holds this, uh, the symbolic Christian view. So uh, if you want details on the others, you have to look up the books and uh, so forth. So I refer to them, so literal prophetic view, uh, it's going to be a rebuilt temple, and then the uh, dispensational view, uh, Schofield view, which is very similar, Messianic apocalyptic. The one I m want to major on and just uh, give you the view I hold is the symbolic Christian view. Now, let me just add a, a couple of other thoughts here. 
Um, if I can find this other little bit of paper I had here. Time out. Oh, here it is. Thank you. Um, yeah, the, the time. Uh, I want you to turn over to page uh, page 31. Yes, page 31, isn't it? Okay, and uh, I want to work through that a little bit. Okay, first of all, before I start on that, um, we have to sort of go through, as I said the other night, you know, Jeremiah's ministry was twofold. Jeremiah was set over the nations and the kingdom to root out, uh, to pull down, to pluck up, to destroy. So it was a terrible rooting out uh, to, uh, uh, type of ministry. Then he was to build and plant. And so the, what I call the Jeremiah principle is often we have to root out traditions and pull down and destroy ideas and concepts that we've been given from uh, Dr. Schofield, who's dead and knows better now, and uh, so forth. And then God can build and plant through. So that's what I've experienced. So I know the different views. I used to believe them. I've had a lot to unlearn, and I, I want to share that with you today. So time... When we look at the, uh, uh, how many have read the chapters of Ezekiel 43 to 48? Just give me an idea. Okay, if you haven't, okay, you need to read it be between now and when Jesus comes. Okay, whatever. So, so as we look back over history, human history, there's never been such a temple as we find in Ezekiel uh, chapters 43 to 48. So we can wipe the past. So time passed, it's not there then some of the views hold that this, that this type of temple is going to be built, uh, a rebuilding of the temple that the, some of the Jews, Orthodox Jews, are uh, talking about. Uh, some of the atheistic Jews, in fact, this might shock you. When I was in the Middle East uh, on a misguided tour, no, I was there for conferences, I found that 80% of the Jews uh, today are atheistic. They don't believe in God or Jesus Christ. Moses was a smart Jew who put it over the Egyptians like we did in the Six-Day War. That's it. So there's about 20% uh, of Orthodox Jews and they're a little bit divided on themselves and some want a temple, others don't want a temple. And then uh, I just read a book recently that the, uh, the Muslims and the, and the Jews would like to rebuild a temple together uh, to be ready for the Messiah. And then the, the Jews in York, New York have threatened to cut off the finance if anybody touches the Mosque of Omer. And so there's lots of things going on in that world out there. And, Probably a lot of you don't uh, have to bother with that. So some say it's going to be the tribulation temple that the Antichrist is uh, going to set himself up in. Uh, we'll see the problems on that in a moment. And then uh, uh, the majority of opinion on the, uh, the first three views is that this is going to be a temple in the millennium and so forth. Whereas the view I hold are uh, more the spiritual lessons on it for the church. So that gives you a basic view on that. Now... Uh, let's go through page 31 and, uh, and, and please remember I'm a jigsaw puzzle teacher so we just look at the parts Hope, hopefully we don't uh, uh, press anything here uh, on, the, on this, uh, this rough diagram I've given you is we have the dwelling places of God in scripture God has always wanted to dwell not only with man but in man that was his idea so as we look at the big uh, overview of the dwelling places of, of, the, of the Lord in the scripture, number one, we first of all, and I, I can't take too much time on this, but we have the tabernacle in, uh, in Eden, 
when Adam and Eve sinned or bombed out and messed us all up here, God actually placed at the east of Eden, so think of the language because having studied these things right through the Bible, uh, part of the jigsaw puzzle, God placed at the east of the garden, so think of the east, the Middle East, and the east uh, where the glory of God came. The glory of God departed from the east, comes back to the east, so east in God's mind. Then at the east of the garden, he placed cherubims and a flaming sword. And the, the cherubim and the flaming sword, the, the, uh, we're told the sword turned every which way, it was like, you know, going like this, every which way, to guard the way to the tree of life. And we've got no record that the, uh, the Garden of Eden and the, the, the cherubim was destroyed until the flood. We've got no record. So as I understand it, that the patriarchs, when they came to worship God, when Cain and Abel brought of their offerings to the Lord, they brought them to the gate of Eden, to the cherubims. And I assume by subsequent scriptures that fire came out from the, the glory of the Lord, the cherubim and the flaming sword, devoured uh, Abel's offering, uh, having respect and not Cain's offering because it was bloodless, as we've talked about. So tabernacle of Eden. So how do I know that? Because the Hebrew word is that when God placed at the Garden of Eden, the east of Eden, cherubims and the flame, flaming sword, the Hebrew word is he tabernacled there. He caused to dwell there. Then subsequent revelation uh, we find in the tabernacle of Moses, it's no longer the tabernacle, uh, the cherubim and the flaming sword. It's the cherubim and the bloodstained mercy seat. And on the mercy seat is blood. And blood is the evidence of death. So it means somebody has been through the sword and the evidence of their death is the blood on the mercy seat. Uh, you, you put yourself back in the Garden of Eden because, you know, God's word is line upon line, here a little, there a little, precept upon precept, as God has a progressive revelation. So if Adam and Eve come back to the Garden and think, oh, we ate of the wrong tree. If only we could get back to the tree of eternal life. And God, if they had have eaten of the tree of life, they would have eaten and lived forever in sin, in an unredeemable state, because God said, And now, lest man put forth his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, he drove them out of the garden. So it was the mercy of God that cut the tree of eternal life off from Adam and Eve, because they would have eaten and lived forever in an unredeemable state. That makes sense to everybody? Over here too? And the left and the right. Okay, makes sense to everybody? Yes, so uh, Adam and Eve, I'm sure they would come to the garden and think, oh, if only, only we could get back to the tree of eternal life. But if we have to go through the flaming sword and the cherubims to get there, so it's the mercy of God that withheld. Now, uh, for those a little bit more studious, it's interesting. In the book of Genesis, the, the book of beginnings, the first book of the Bible, uh, there's two trees, main trees tree of eternal life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. When you get to the book of Revelation, there's only one tree. It's the tree of eternal life. What's happened to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's exhausted its fruitfulness in the tragic history of the human race. And the first promise to the first church that left its first love is the first thing Adam and Eve lost. To him who overcomes I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Revelation chapters 2, verses 1 through to 6. Okay, so that's enough on that. Tabernacle in Eden. And then we go to number 2. 
we move after Noah's time, we move to the patriarchal altars. And at the altars, we find that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Noah and the different patriarchs, they built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And uh, there was often an appearance of God. God visited them. So patriarchal altars. Then uh, number three, uh, we come to the Exodus and then God called Moses up on the mount and gives him the revelation of the tabernacle of Moses, which is a fuller expression of what was seeded uh, in seed form in the, in the tabernacle of Eden. So uh, we have the cherubim, the flaming, uh, cherubim and the mercy seat, pardon me, blood on the mercy seat, the outer court, the altar, and then the holy place and the most holy place, whole revelation there. And tabernacle of Moses is basically the way of approach to God. Nobody could approach to God without blood, without the shedding of blood, no remission. Number four, the next dwelling place of God is what we call the tabernacle of David. Uh, years later, and we find that the Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle of Moses is now put in the tabernacle of David. And, uh, and that's the way of worship. So we have in the tabernacle of David, instruments of worship, the singers, the song of the Lord, and so many things there. Excellent book uh, written by a close friend of mine to my other nature. Okay. And then number five, the next dwelling place of God. So, so uh, uh, you'd have to, I'm not giving you scriptures on this, but you'll find that uh, in Chronicles, God said, I've gone from tent to tent, and from one tabernacle to another tabernacle. So just that scripture just confirms what I'm doing here. I've gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another tabernacle. So the final dwelling place of God in the Old Testament was the, what we call the Temple of Solomon. Uh, and so the Ark of the Covenant moved from Tabernacle of Moses, from Tabernacle of David, after 30 years into the Temple of Solomon, and it remained there until the Temple was destroyed. And then uh, later on we see the temple was destroyed, which we've seen in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, a temple of Solomon destroyed, Babylon captivity and everything like that. Then number six, under the restoration, because the Babylon captivity only happened, uh, lasted 70 years, then God used the prophets and, uh, and uh, Nehemiah, Joshua and uh, Haggai and Zechariah and uh, these men uh, prophets uh, under the restored temple. So they were restored to the land and, and the temple was restored. And the only reason the material temple was restored after the Babylon captivity was to hold the land, uh, the, hold the people of Judah, pardon me, in the land until the Messiah came. Because the last prophecy of Malachi was, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come, or come suddenly to his temple. So they needed to be held in the land until the Messiah came. So we have the restored temple under the old covenant times. Then we have in between Ezekiel's vision of this uh, temple that we're looking at. Is it a literal temple, a material temple, a spiritual? What is it all about? That's what we're looking at. And then later on under Herod's time, uh, when he was made sort of um, false king over uh, uh, Judah, we have Herod's temple, which was simply a beautification of the restored temple. So all these were material temples. Now when we come to Jesus or to the cross, remember the other night, part of our jigsaw puzzle, he turned around after ministering there, he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, ministered in the temple on and off over the three and a half years, and then at the end he said, no longer my father's house, 
uh, uh, your house. Your house left to you desolate. Then he goes up to the Mount of Olives and then prophesies the temple's destruction in A.D. 70. So you've got to remember that God moved from tent to tent, tabernacle to uh, tabernacle, just in these material things, but he didn't really want to live in the temple. He wanted to live in us. That's the thing. We've got to keep that in mind. All right, so in A.D. 70, the temple uh, at Jerusalem was destroyed. So number eight, uh, Christ Jesus is the temple of God. When they said to him, give us a sign, when he cleansed the temple, uh, give us a sign that you do these things. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they said, 46 years was this temple uh, being built, which was uh, restored by Herod to, and beautified. But he did not speak of the temple. He spoke of the temple of his body. They were looking at the wrong temple. Like a lot of Christians are looking at a material temple, he spake of the temple of his body. And I want you to think of the larger view, the temple of his body, the body of Christ. And see, how it was fulfilled was when Jesus died on the cross, it pointed to destroy this temple, that's his crucifixion. I'll raise it up again in three days and that's his resurrection the temple of his body. So we have significantly there, significantly there, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we, we, when we come to number nine here, uh, all the New Testament writers, they don't speak anywhere of Ezekiel's temple. If it's going to be in the future, they always say the church is the temple of God. You are the temple of God. Never once do the New Testament writers ever speak of a material temple because in A.D. 7 it's destroyed and many of the, most of the books in the, in the New Testament were written after the destruction of the material temple. So they're not looking at a material temple. Uh, the only reference is in Hebrews chapter, the book of Hebrews where the temple had not been destroyed as yet. It was just a few years before. So spiritual temple now, New Covenant times, Christ and the church. Christ in his temple. And I'd like you to look at this last scripture here, uh, if we go backwards, and we're sort of going through process of elimination. Revelation chapter 21, 22. So that just sort of gives you an overview of the dwelling places of God in Old Testament times, then in, in New Testament, AD 70, the material temple is destroyed. The New Testament writers say the church is the temple of God, under New Covenant times. Then Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21 and verse 22, John takes us way over the thousand years, which I've got on the diagram there, and he takes us to the new heavens and new earth, and verse 22 uh, is sort of process of elimination. Uh, and I saw no temple in it, in the city of God, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So process of elimination, we cannot have the Ezekiel's temple in the new heavens and new earth. We don't need a temple there. The church is God's temple, but here it says no temple for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So we have the temple and the Lamb are its temple, God and the Lamb. So process of elimination. So it's uh, the temple, ca this Ezekiel, cannot be built in the new heavens and new earth. That's out. Okay, question is, is it going to be a millennial temple? Or is it, what is it? That's what we're looking at. 
Everybody got the gist of that? I enjoyed doing that. That was great. Thank you. All right, now let's go to my next point. Okay, now the two things we're going to look at in our time here is two major objections. So back to page 30. Page 30. So the view I hold, number four, is the symbolic spiritual Christian view. Okay, now objections to the actual material temple view. Uh, two object objections we're going to look at. Uh, my computer made a spelling mistake there. You can correct it. Letter A, the geographical or material uh, problem that we have here. And then letter B, which is the major one, as far as I'm concerned, and this is where I had to relearn, is the theological or covenantal uh, objection. So they're the two objections. Now, um, what I, I think I sent, I think I told you about this uh, Hong Sing somewhere, didn't I? I think. Under letter A, the best uh, book to get on it is uh, uh, down the bo uh, bottom there under number seven, refer to J. Sidlow's, uh, Sidlow Baxter's book. And uh, uh, I, I, I'm just holding up the chapters. What I did, I've got the book, and uh, for those who are really studious, he is the best author I've seen on, on uh, the objections uh, to the geographical material thing. So uh, it's too vast to go through, but say, let me just draw your attention. Number one, he, he talks about the land area. And if this was a literal material temple, he says the land area of Jerusalem and the rebuilt temple would have to be at least 17 miles square for a start. And he said the land area for the priests and uh, the holy oblation, it's so vast. It, uh, the whole land of, of Israel in its present state, the River Jordan would have to be moved and uh, the Red Sea would have to be moved in order for the rivers to flow. Uh, according to that, uh, he said the whole geographical problems, and uh, I'd recommend if you really, that's the best material I've seen on these chapters there, uh, what are they, uh, page, oh, those chapters on Ezekiel, that's the best uh, material. On. So he goes into the objections of the vast land area, it, uh, would co uh, the temple itself, he said, would cover the whole land of Israel in its present state. Now that's a pretty big temple, and he said it would take uh, about four, nearly four hours to ride on a motorcycle uh, to get to the altar of sacrifice. <laughs> so you know, by the time you killed the animal and uh, got on your motorcycle and drove up to the altar four miles away, whatever it is, uh, the blood would all be congealed, you'd be exhausted, and you'd run out of gas. I mean, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's too vast to go into. I want to spend the major time on the covenantal because to me this is the, the most powerful argument. So I've put down the outline from his book here. So the land area is so unbelievable. The holy oblation area, uh, just for the priests alone. The temple area, uh, as I said, you know, it would cover the whole area of present-day Jerusalem. The city area, which is beyond that. And the living waters, he said, if the living waters come from the Dead Sea uh, or the River Jordan, uh, God would have to move the river. And God could do it if he wants to. I don't think he wants to, uh, you know. And then the temple materials, he says, none of the materials in the temple are really mentioned in, in the vision. You've got to remember it is a vision. 
Uh, I, th I think he says a couple of things are mentioned of wood. And then number seven, uh, there's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. And pretty well all of the furniture is completely never mentioned once. So if it's going to be a real, literal, actual temple, why isn't the Ark mentioned once? where the glory of God was to dwell upon, and why are not the other furnishings mentioned at all? So if you want to do that properly, I'm not going to wear you out on that, but there's chapter after chapter, about three or four chapters on the uh, objections, on the geographical and the material objections. So that's w uh, well worth it. Now, um, there's only one book here by KJC on the Temple of Solomon, and page 666, no, Page 225, I've quoted from, uh, from Baxter on this and it put the obje objections to uh, Ezekiel's temple there on a geographical material objection. Okay, now the main one I want to spend my time on is letter B. To me, this is the most important thing, the theological and covenantal objections. So here's a proposition. I'll sort of try and remember what I haven't got here. A proposition. The New Covenant writers lived at the overlapping of dispensations. Maybe I could just uh, try and put it this way, if I can. Okay, so say, say here we are at the cross, and we've got to remember that the cross is what... And I'd like you to put this down if you, if you want to. The cross is really the hermeneutical filter. So, this side of the cross, we have the Old Covenant, OC, and this side of the cross, we have the NC, the New Covenant. So, the cross is the hermeneutical filter. So, what you have to do with everything in the Old Testament, I do this with everything once I, I saw this, I take everything from the Old Testament, it doesn't matter what it is, say, circumcision, Sabbath days, the Ten Commandments on Tables of Stone, Tabernacle of Moses, t uh, Tabernacle of David, Temple of Solomon, bells, smells, incense and nonsense, it doesn't matter. I take everything to the cross and it's either fulfilled and abolished at the cross or else if it goes through the cross, it comes into a higher level. Let me explain. How many would agree with me that circumcision was abolished at the cross? Thank you for that underwhelming response. How many believe that at the cross, sacrifices were abolished? How many believe at the cross, uh, the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood was abolished? As I said the other night, you know, I would not like to have been the priest on duty that day as he's offering the evening sacrifice and all of a sudden God just comes down and rips the veil open and says, boys, you're out of a job. Oh, that would have scared the living daylights out of me. See, but God's finished with it. So we have to take everything through the, to the cross and it's either fulfilled and abolished at the cross or else it goes through the cross into a new way. So, the, so we, I think we all basically agree with that. I'm going to repeat it later. What about the tabernacle of David? Was worship abolished at the cross? No. It goes to the cross and through the cross into a higher level because we worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, so, so this is a really important principle. The cross is the hermeneutical filter, so everything has to pass to the cross 
and it's either fulfilled and abolished at the cross or else it passes through the cross into a higher and spiritual level. That's really important to get hold of. So, so my proposition was this, that the new covenant, uh, let, let's turn over an example before I continue. Uh, let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, this, this is a master key to understanding the New Testament as well as the Old. So 1 Peter chapter 2. And then I'll go back to my proposition. So 1 Peter chapter 2. And um, let's pick up in, in verse, uh, verse 4. Uh, New King James here. So coming to him as to a living stone... Rejected indeed of me, by men, but chosen by God and precious, living stone. You also as living stones, lively stones. How many lively stones here? A few. How many rolling stones here? You can't build a church out of rolling stones. Lively stones you can. So I'm a lively stone today, praise God. Uh, and everybody said, Amen. So you also as lively stones, living stones, are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood not the Levitical priesthood not the Aaronic priesthood where would you get this from Peter Kevin I used to live under the old covenant now through the cross I've come under the new covenant okay so a spiritual house not a literal house not a physical house spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up what spiritual sacrifices What's Peter doing? Spiritualizing things away? No, he knows that the, the priesthood of Levi and Aaron has been abolished at the cross, but we are now kings and priests unto God. So it passes, it, it, it passes to the cross, fulfilled and abolished at the cross, but it moves into a higher level. We are a priesthood of kings and priests after the order of Melchizedek. And then he says, if you're a priesthood, you have to have a house, you have to offer sacrifices. But what sort of sacrifices? Say it with me. Spiritual sacrifices. So in the tabernacle of David, I did nine spiritual sacrifices that we are to offer, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, if you were writing under the Old Testament, you put it this way. You also, as dead stones, rolling stones, are built up a literal house, an unholy priesthood, to offer up animal sacrifices, unacceptable to God through Aaron. And uh, I, I love verse 6. Peter says, it is contained, it is also contained in the scripture. He never knows where it is. <laughs> so when you don't know where it is, you just say it's contained in the scripture. Yeah, 66 books of it. Paul is different. Paul says, it is written in the second psalm. How many like Peter? <laughs> How many like Paul? Okay, so I, I like that. It's contained in the scripture. Uh, Isaiah, behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect precious and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame well Peter that's in Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16 read your Bible therefore to you who believe he is precious but to those who are disobedient the stone which the builders rejected don't you know where that comes from Psalm 118 one of the verses there uh, and a stone of stumbling Isaiah chapter 8 uh, where's Peter getting that from so he's using old covenant language. So now let me get back to my proposition. So the new covenant writers lived at the overlapping of dispensations. 
They've been under the dispensation, uh, let me put up here, the dispensation of law, and now they're under the dispensation of grace uh, in a more fuller way. There's always been law and grace, but from the law. So they lived at the overlapping of dispensations. So they've sort of been one side of the cross, and now they've got their foot the other side of the cross. So what do they do? The New Covenant writers, living at the overlapping of dispensations, have come through the cross, but they use all covenant language to describe New Covenant realities. Let me say that again. Really important to lay hold of this because we're looking at hermeneutics and principles of interpreting this vision. So uh, the, the New Covenant writers lived at the overlapping of dispensations. They've been under the Old Covenant and now through the cross they've come into the New Covenant. So they are New Covenant believers. They've been Old Covenant believers, now they're New Covenant believers. So what do they do? They often use Old Covenant language spiritual sacrifices, spiritual house, a holy priesthood. That's all old covenant language. Yeah, but they're spiritual now. So they use old covenant language to describe new covenant realities, but they pass everything through the cross. I think I mentioned this to you the other night, I think. I talked so much lately. When I uh, did an exposition on the book of Revelation, to me the wonder of it was that what John has done under inspiration of the Spirit, he's composed one book out of the 65 books that went beforehand. And uh, in my own studies and another textbook I wrote there, I did uh, Genesis in Revelation, Exodus in Revelation, Ex uh, Leviticus in Revelation, Numbers in Revelation. I've gone through the 65 books where John has either quoted or uh, made an allusion or a reference to, and he's composed one book out of the 65 books that went before without any contradiction. That's the miracle of inspiration. But the language of, of, uh, of Revelation, it's impossible to understand unless you understand all covenant language. So just, just off, the, off the cuff here, it wasn't on my notes. Uh, like the tabernacle of Moses and the tabernacle of David are all in Revelation. The temple of Solomon's in Revelation. How do I know that? Every article of furniture from the Tabernacle of Moses is mentioned in the book of Revelation except one. And he's got a company of people at them. What do you do? So it opens up with Revelation chapter 1. The great high priest in his garments of glory and beauty. Chapter one, uh, 2 and 3, he sees seven golden lampstands. The seven local churches. Where did you get that from, John? All coming. I got that from the Tabernacle of Moses and the Temple of Solomon. And then chapter 4... Uh, he sees a, sea, a, a, a seven-sealed book. And when you go back to Deuteronomy, every king had to have a book in the throne. And here's a sealed book in the throne. And then you come to chapter uh, 6, and he sees the souls under the altar. And then you come to chapter 8, he sees the altar of incense and the, and, and, and the golden censer. Chapter 11, verse 19, he sees the Ark of the Covenant. Hey, where did he get it all from? It's all old covenant language but it's got to pass through the cross because we're New Covenant believers. So that's very important to keep that in mind. So let me say that one more time. So the cross is the hermeneutical filter. We pass everything to and it's either fulfilled and abolished at the cross, abolished by fulfillment. The sacrifice of Christ abolished all animal sacrifices. He was the fulfillment and he abolished the old. So... Uh, uh, I've been taught, and I think I 
had great anointings on it till I found I was wrong. Uh, that, uh, you know, in the, t in the millennium kingdom, we're going to have a temple. We're all going to go up to Jerusalem, keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, one brother said to me many years ago, he said, Kevin, do you know what God's doing with you? I said, sometimes I wonder. He said, God is training you as a priest in the new covenant church so that you'll be able to offer animal sacrifices in the millennium. I said, well, Kevin forbid and heaven forbid. We saw the other night, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have finished with the material temple. Okay, so that's really important to keep that in mind. So, New Covenant writers lived at the crossroads, the overlapping of dispensations. Now, okay, let's go to uh, letter B here down a little bit further. So, that's my proposition. Everybody got hold, hold of that, the gist of it? So, Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, and the cross is the hermeneutical filter. Now, as I've gone through Ezekiel's temple, this is what I found. Uh, nearly everything in the uh, Ezekiel's temple is the language of the Mosaic Covenant. So, letter A, we have the temple. Letter B, we have the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, letter C, we have altars, the altar of incense and the altar of sacrifice. Then letter D, we have the sacrifice and oblation. And then letter E, we have the Feast of the Lord, a couple of them referred to. And then letter F, we have Sabbaths and new moons. And then letter G, we have reference to the rite of circumcision. Uh, you can go through all that uh, yourself. And then we have H, the Shekinah glory. And you've got to remember this, that in the, uh, the habitations I gave you here, the dwelling places, when the Temple of Solomon was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and the, the temple was restored, they never did find the ark. Now there's some people today, I've seen a, a video on this. Uh, turn over to Jeremiah chapter 3 while I'm talking here. Jeremiah chapter, I think it's 3. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, yes. Uh, yes, okay. Jeremiah chapter 3, uh, just a moment. So when, when the temple was restored under Zechariah, Malachi, and uh, Haggai, and so forth, the, they never could find the ark. The temple of God has never had an ark in it since. When the glory departed, uh, we have the final mention of the ark in Jeremiah, and no temple since the Babylon captivity has ever had the ark. And you see, there were five things missing from the restored temple. No ark, and because there was no ark, there was no restored glory. There was no Urim and Thummim uh, that the high priest used to wear to get the mind of God. Uh, uh, what else? There was no proper genealogy. There was about five things missing. And even when the temple was destroyed uh, in AD 70, they only had a stone in the most holy place where they put the golden censer on for prayer, but the ark was never found. This is the final mention of the ark in the Old Testament. Now, some people today are saying they've found it and that the Jews won't let them uh, take it out. Uh, I think if there was money in it, they'd let them. <laughs> and then one writer I read on it and uh, watched the, uh, uh, the DVD on it, he said that when Jesus was crucified, 
the blood of Jesus actually dripped through the cracks in the ground onto the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, I'm sorry, I think that's phony baloney. <laughs> sorry to be an Australian, is that right? Listen to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16. And this is the final mention of the Ark under Jeremiah's time who saw the destruction of the temple. And it, it says here, Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, whatever those days refer to, says the Lord, that they will say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be any made any more. That's the last mention of the Ark of the Covenant in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And it's never been seen since. And note the four things that God said about the Ark. Now, you see the candlesticks, the lampstands, the altar, everything was wonderful. But everything took its uh, glory and place in relation to the Ark. Because the Ark was the only article of furniture on which the Shekinah glory dwelt and from which God spoke. It was the most important. And it's not here. And note the four things they, that they say about it. Let's read it again. So then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased the land in those days. So we have to determine what those days were, whether it was the restored temple or not says the Lord, they will say no more. Number one, the ark of the coming of the Lord, the most important thing. Without the ark, everything was glory-less. Number two, it shall not come to mind. Number three, nor shall they remember it. Wow, I mean, you know, the, I've gone through the history of the ark. Number four, or whatever we're up to, nor shall they visit it. And number five, then must be, nor shall it be made any more. That's pretty solemn, the ark. Okay. All right, so where are we up to on this? All right, so back to our notes here. So the Sabbath and new moons, the rite of circumcision, the Shekinah glory, uh, visiting the ark. Uh, but there's no mention of the ark, as I said. It's not even mentioned in Ezekiel's temple. And then the worship of Jerusalem. You see, Jesus repudiated worship at Jerusalem. Let's go to uh, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Everybody still breathing? John chapter 4. And uh, let's go to verse 19. Jesus talking to the woman at the well. So the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. How many think if Jesus talked to you about you having five husbands and the guy you're living with now is not your husband, how many think you say, Oh, you're a prophet. <laughs> Uh, verse 20, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, uh, which was Mount Gerizim in Samaria, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And you see, this, uh, this Ezekiel's temple is to be in Jerusalem, and people are supposed to go up and worship. Hey, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain... Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, worship the Father. You worship, you do not know what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, in fact, it now is. So, hour is coming in verse 21, but verse 23, the hour is coming and now is. When the true worshippers will worship the Father 
not in Jerusalem, not in the mountain, not in Gerizim, but in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus repudiated Jerusalem as a place of worship. So we don't have to go to Jerusalem for a misguided tour. Interesting, interesting place to look at. The Valley of Armageddon and all that type of thing. That far as a place. Human places. And then what I gave you the other night is that uh, Jerusalem, which spiritually is Sodom and Egypt. All right, so letter I, the worship of Jerusalem. Okay, now let me sort of try and summarize this. If Ezekiel's temple is a literal rebuilt temple, is God going to restore the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood? Uh, what's your answer? Okay, is he going to restore sacrificial altars? Is he going to restore sacrifice and oblation? Is he going to restore the actual keeping of the feasts of the Lord? Is he going to restore the Sabbaths and the new moons? Are we going back to that? Is he going to restore the rite of circumcision? All the men said hallelujah. <laughs> so you ladies don't have all the problems. <laughs> Is he going to restore worship at Jerusalem? Are we all going to have to go up to Jerusalem? The answer is no. So you see, because we are new covenant believers and everything that I've listed here uh, was fulfilled and abolished at the cross, we are under new covenant and so God is not going to backslide because that's what it means. Say, okay, uh, so here we are. Um, the law age, 1,500 years approximately. And approximately 2,000, well, we'll say 2,010, because we don't know where we're up, uh, age of grace. And then when Jesus comes here, we're going to have a 1,000 years uh, of what I call a Christian millennium, not a Jewish millennium. If you have a Jewish millennium, then all these things are going to be restored. But you see, God would have to backslide and go the other side of the cross to restore the Mosaic Covenant. He's not going to do it. When he saw his son and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, he just couldn't help responding. He said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So God's not going to go back to the old covenant. So we are new covenant believers. So to me, this is the greatest uh, view uh, that, uh, that Ezekiel's temple is not a literal rebuilt temple, that there's only spiritual essence as a vision. Some say that he, uh, they should have built the temple, but just the geographical complications and the theological complications repudiate it as a rebuilt temple. Okay, um, in, this, in, in this book that I've told you about, uh, I'll tell you what I did. Where did I do that? Try to save place here. Um, I'm not trying to sell your book, but for those who are really interested, in the uh, supplemental chapters, this is what I did. Uh, on these chapters. The Temple of Solomon, Temple History, the Temple of Zerubbabel, uh, the, the, the Temple of Herod, Ministry of Christ in the Temple, which I've already alluded to, the Temple of Ezekiel's Vision, the Temple in Thessalonians, what about the Temple where Antichrist sets himself up? Have, have you ever thought about this? When Paul says that the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the Temple of God, showing himself that he is God, have you ever thought of this possibility? You are the temple of God. 
and that the Antichrist will come from the church. Think about it. Don't throw it away. The temple in Revelation, there are how many references to the temple in, in Revelation? There's only two of them possibly that refer to a literal temple in Jerusalem. Certainly not Ezekiel's temple. All the rest are, I'll make, uh, to him that overcomes, I'll make a pillar in the temple of God. And in heaven there's no temple, the Lord God and the Lamb of the temple. Problems of, of a tribulation temple, so forth. So that's all in that book. And then I'm going to come in for a landing soon. Make way for questions. Then uh, this is Noel's book, so I can't steal this. Uh, this is called New Covenant Realities. And it's sort of a, um, a supplemental to uh, the covenants that I did. And in this book, what I did, uh, going down to... Was that all right? Going down to number two on, your, on that page, page 30. So we've got number one, the Mosaic Covenant, the problems of the restoration of the Mosaic Covenant, and everything, uh, if this is a rebuilt material, literal temple, and all these things are restored, it act act actually contradicts the whole book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews says, Christ's sacrifice. We're never going to go back to... If we go back to animal sacrifice, it means God's got to backslide and go the other side of the cross. Well, Christians may backslide. God will never will. He's never going to reinstitute. You see, if God, if this is a material, literal temple and God reinstitutes circumcision and Sabbath days and animal sacrifices, that's the biggest insult he could give to his son. It's the biggest insult to Calvary. So in this book, what I did, I went through all the points of Schofield, Dr. Schofield, who I had great anointings on until I found I was wrong, and I did, the cross is the key. New covenant circumcision is of the heart. New covenant Israel. Peace be upon the Israel of God. They are not all Israel. So when people are going around saying, so all Israel be, will be saved, why don't they read the context? They are not all Israel which are of Israel, so if all Israel is to be saved, and they're not all Israel which are of Israel, who's the Israel that's going to be saved? <laughs> Did you get that? You see, they are not all spiritual Israel which are of natural Israel. That's what Paul's saying. Read the context. New covenant uh, temple, new covenant priesthood, new covenant sacrifices. There's nine of them. I think I've got it in this book. I must buy myself a book. Uh, <laughs> New Covenant incense. You know, what is the incense that God wants in the New Covenant church? The prayers of the saints. It's all there. New Covenant feasts. New Covenant land of rest. New Covenant kingdom. New Covenant commandments. Written on the tables of our heart and mind. New Covenant day of rest. New Covenant Jerusalem. Uh, the better covenant. So, I think there's about three books left there. All right, I think I'm, I think I'm sort of done, really. Let's see. We hope you've enjoyed today's teaching. Visit kevinconnor.org for more information.